Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we welcome to the show a former development and production exec at Universal, Appian Way, and Overbrook, a graduate of Harvard University, magna cum laude, a member of Hollywood Reporter's Next Gen Class of 2009, and the founder of The Blacklist, Mr. Franklin Leonard. Welcome to the podcast, Franklin. Uh, thank you very much for having me and for that very generous introduction. <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. Um, so first off, we, we normally like to start the interviews, um, especially in your situation, because you graduated Harvard with a degree in social studies, I believe, yeah, uh, so work, worked in politics and publishing mm-hmm. um, or journalism. Um, so how did you get your start in the industry? What What inspired you to work in the industry and how did you get your start? Yeah, it was sort of a circuitous path that... Um, you know, I sort of attribute to the fact that I was will. I'm generally willing to try anything professionally, or at least was. And then, as soon as I decide that it's not for me, I, I move on. Um, so I graduated college in 2000. Um, I helped run a congressional campaign in Cincinnati, Ohio, like right out of school. Um, and then I moved to Trinidad. My my maternal grandfather is from Trinidad and Tobago, so I moved there and was writing for the uh, the Guardian newspapers there briefly. And then I moved to New York City and took a job as a business analyst at McKinsey and Company, where I did a lot of work that was focused in the media and entertainment space, which had always interested me, um, both because of the content and the role the content plays in society. And um, like a lot of uh, people working in the consultant industry and my entire analyst class at the time, I was laid off with about five months severance. And I realized that I was spending most of my time in New York either watching movies or reading about the film industry. But, you know, I grew up in West Central Georgia. It had never really occurred to me that there were jobs for people with my background in the industry. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I really had never occurred to me that I could go out and try to work in film. So I came out here with a round trip ticket in uh, March of 2003. I had a drink with a friend of a friend who mentioned that uh, there was an assistant, there was an agent at CAA who was looking for an assistant. Uh, I sent my resume in. I had an interview. Um, she offered me the job. And, um, and, and literally, I, I had to say, look, I accept, but technically, I still live in New York. All of my stuff is still there. And uh, very generously, she said that uh, if I could come in and train for several weeks, she'd give me two weeks to go pack up my life, uh, and then I could start officially in mid-April, which is what I did. Wow. So it was uh, really uh, sudden, and uh, you know, and I think a lot of it has to do with preparation, but also luck, and it just seems like your path crossed. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. My, my father was in the military. He was in the U.S. Army for over over 25 years. Mm. So, you know, there, there was a lot of conversations about, you know, um, there's no such thing as luck. It's only preparation, meeting opportunity. Um, and I think that's probably true. But, you know, where does the opportunity come from if not luck? So right. I, I think I was very fortunate um, in the fact that, you know, I happened to have a drink with my friend on that day and that is the other assistant walked by and mentioned that there was an agent looking for uh, an assistant. Um, and honestly, I think probably the, the greatest luck that I had was, was who I worked for. Um, Rowena Arguelles at CAA, who was my first boss in the industry, is still one, a, a dear friend of mine. And I, I don't know that I would have continued working in the industry had I not worked for her as my introduction to the way things worked out here. Right. right. No, no, I agree. I, I was an assistant at CA as well, and she's a tremendous agent. Yeah. No, I mean, she's a tremendous agent, tremendous person. Um, and I actually, I look forward to going to work every day and answering her phone. Great. Now, so you went from CIA mm-hmm. to uh, Universal. Was Universal your next stop? 
No, there were a few stops in between. Um, I went to go work for John Golwin Productions. Okay. Uh, he just left Paramount to start his production company on the lot. I was there for about six months, and then I got recruited to go work at uh, you know DiCaprio's company, Appian Way. Um, I was there for about two and a half years, and then went to go work for Mirage uh, Enterprises, Sidney Pollock and Anthony Minghella's company. Mm -hmm. um, uh, unfortunately, about six months after I started working there, Sidney uh, fell ill. Six months after that, Anthony died, and about three months after that, Sydney died, and that's when I went to Universal after working mm. for Mirage. And then after that was Overbrook, correct? That was Overbrook, yeah. And and that's, that's where you created the Blacklist. No, it actually goes. The, the Blacklist has been around much longer than that. Okay. I actually started the Blacklist in two thousand five. Right. Um, well, the annual list started in two thousand five when I was working for for Leo's company, Appian Way. Okay. Um, you know, I was. My job was to read everything I could get my hands on and um, and then pass the best stuff up to my bosses. And I felt like most of the things that I was were, was reading uh, were mediocre. And, right. you know, I, that either meant that, you know, the job was reading mediocre scripts and passing on them or that I was very bad at my job, which was identifying and finding good material. So I took a survey of my peers um, at the end of 2004 and said, um, send me a list of your 10 favorite screenplays from this year that won't be in theaters by the end of this year. And in exchange, I'll send you the combined, you know, the aggregated list. And that's what I did. And I slapped a vaguely subversive name on it and went on vacation. And when I came back, it had been forwarded back to me a number of times. And it sort of became a thing. Right. At what point did you think that this could be more that you wanted to create, you know, the uh, coverage slash tracking slash uh, posting service and yeah. development site now, technically. I mean, development site that it is now. Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think it was, it was definitely several years after the first annual list launched. I mean, I was, um, you know, initially it was really just this thing that I was doing to help me find good scripts. But I think by 2010, uh, the idea of a or maybe 2009 even the idea of a once yearly PDF that circulated via email had become kind of adorable, um, and you know the the people's relationship to technology had changed dramatically. You know, in 2005, in 2004, when the first list went out, that was really pre Facebook being something that people regularly use. It was pre Twitter, pre Pinterest, pre. All of these things that I think we probably now take for granted for the most part in terms of the way we share information and the way we interact online. And so by 2009, 2010, I was in this place where I started thinking about ways in which we could take the basic premise of the blacklist that had made it successful. This idea that if you ask people what they love in aggregate, they do a very good job of identifying things that can be great um, into a more dynamic, real time uh, ecosystem. So with my partner, Dino Siamich, um, who's an engineer out of Boston, um, you know, we built a website and sort of ran it in beta for a while that allowed industry professionals to rate the scripts they had read via agents and managers, and those ratings would aggregate to create like a real-time best-of list. Um, and we built a recommendation engine as well to make recommendations to people based on their individual taste, you may like this script. And so the idea was to sort of be a, a Google for screenplays, if you will. Um, the idea was to be a Google for screenplays, if you will, that would allow people to more efficiently find exactly the kind of material that they were looking for. And on the eve of launching that as sort of, as sort of at the eve of coming out of beta, I realized that, you know, we could also then answer a question that I had been asked 
dozens of times whenever I'd gone to speak on panels as the blacklist guy, which was, I wrote what I think is a great script. I don't know anyone in Hollywood. How do I get my script to somebody who can either A, tell me whether it's good or not, or B, do something with it if it is good? And, you know, for years, I never had a good answer to that question. It was basically like, well, enter the Nickel Fellowship, and if you do well, people will pay attention because the Nickel is, you know, the sort of platinum brand in screenwriting competitions or enter the Austin Film Festival competition. But that answer felt insufficient to me because it's a once a year thing, um, and it puts the writer in a situation where they sort of have to take the first offer of representation or you know option that they get because they don't know if there's another one coming. Um, and so we realized that we could sort of throw a gate over this ecosystem that we had created um, and allow people to upload their scripts to our site, have them evaluated, and if it's good, we could tell the entire industry and then step aside. You know, I've likened it to online dating for people who write movies and people who make movies. Um, and it originally started as a joke, but I think it's pretty accurate. Um, and that, that idea of it sort of being a database for screenplays remains. It's just that because of technology, we're allowed to capture not only the scripts that are already circulating with the Indian industry, but literally every script in the English language that anyone could possibly want to submit. Okay. So this is just sort of a, a basic question. And it's uh, a screenwriting one, and we get asked it a lot. As a former exec yourself, can you explain why studios and production companies tend to not accept unsolicited material? Yeah, I mean, my, my sense, and I, you know, the question's probably better asked to a lawyer, but my sense is that there, there are legal issues around that. So, you know, if you submit a script to a studio and they read it or they sort of intake it and have it evaluated, um, and your script is terrible, but it has a concept that's remotely related to something that they're already doing, um, then you may be able to sue. And, you know, we live in a highly litigious uh, society um, with a lot of nonsense lawsuits, um, and they want to generally avoid having to deal with that. Right. I want to go back to the blacklist, and I know a lot of listeners are probably interested in sort of the inner workings of the blacklist. Mm -hmm. um, first off, how were your readers hired? Is there so any sort of testing or training that they have to go through? Um, and are they given specific criteria on how to judge submissions? Um, and if so, can you reveal what, what those uh, criteria might be? Yeah, absolutely. So all of our readers, and there are about 80 right now, um, have worked for at least a year um, in, a, in a paid position as essentially a first filter at a major agency, management company, or sort of equivalent company, production company, studio, network, whatever, within the industry. Um, so, and then when they apply, they send us their professional resume and two examples of their previous coverage, which I personally review. Um, and we've hired fewer than 20%, maybe even lower than that, of those who've applied with that minimum of experience. Mm -hmm. So these are folks who are already familiar with the marketplace for screenplays. They've been reading screenplays essentially professionally for at least a year. They have a great deal of exposure to what people respond to and what they don't. Um, and beyond that, they're really strong, critical readers and writers, um, lest they wouldn't get past sort of my filter for their coverage. Um, you know, I've often described them as the best of who would be reading your script if you submitted it to any company. Because mm -hmm. as we all know, when your script gets submitted, it goes sort of through the uh, through you know through a reader who does some sort of coverage, and then the executive, if the coverage comes back good, often will then read it, um, or it's handed to an assistant who reads alongside the executive, or whatever it is. These are the best of the folks who are reading the script under this, that circumstance. Um, and there, you know, we don't train the readers. We don't um, 
give them explicit instructions on what makes a good script and what makes a bad script for a few reasons. The first is that given their experience level, they already have some familiarity with that. And the second is that I fundamentally don't believe in an objective standard of art. Um, I think that it's all subjective and that ultimately that subjectivity is something that shouldn't, you shouldn't attempt to deny that it exists. And so we try to lean into it. And we tell all of our readers to rate scripts on a scale of one to 10 based on how likely they would be to recommend that script to a peer or superior in the industry. So the idea is, is that in the same way that the blacklist, the annual blacklist functions as uh, executives saying, here's a list of my 10 favorite scripts from the previous year, which are not necessarily scripts that I think are the best written or not necessarily scripts that I think are you know, going to make the most money. There's, here are the scripts that I love and want to tell the world about. I think the same, you know, the same basic standard exists within our, our paid readers, which is how likely would you be to recommend the script to someone you know who works in the industry? Um, and I think it's that, that construction has done a really good job of identifying material that ranges from big studio movie all the way down to incredibly tiny indie because um, we're reading scripts as samples essentially more than we are as for their potential for production. Mm-hmm. Your uh, coverage service is fifty dollars, correct? Right. Yeah, I mean, we don't call it a coverage service, um, and I sort of I want to differentiate us from companies that function that way. Um, it costs fifty dollars to have your script evaluated by one of our readers, and they're not providing coverage in any conventional sense. What they're providing is a, a one paragraph summary of the script's greatest strengths, a one paragraph summary of the script's greatest weaknesses, a half paragraph on the script's commercial prospects in the current marketplace, mm-hmm. and then numerical scores along a number of dimensions like character, dialogue, plot, and then an overall score from one to ten. Um, and you can only purchase that evaluation if your script is already hosted on the site, which costs $25 a month. Gotcha. Okay. Now, um, we view those paid evaluations as a way to catalyze interest for scripts from our industry members. So we have 2,300 industry professionals who are using our site uh, to find material. And so we want, and obviously they're not looking for just any script, they're looking for good scripts. And this is a way for if you don't have, um, you know, if, you're, if your college roommate isn't a manager or your dad doesn't have a friend who works at CAA, you're able to get your script evaluated. And if it's good, then we can tell everybody, hey, download this script. Now, you said they get a score from 1 to 10. That's right. Um, and that's, a, you know, sort of an aggregate average based on the different uh, spectrum of criteria scores. No, right? it's actually not. I just want to be very clear about that. Oh, okay. It's not aggregate based on any of the elements. And the reason for that is... Um, the overall score is separate from each of the individual elements because uh-huh. obviously plot, character, dialogue, setting, um, and premise don't represent all of the elements of what makes a screenplay good or bad. Sure. And furthermore, oftentimes a screenplay can be better than the sum of its parts or less than the sum of its parts. So the overall score is really an overall impact score. How likely would this reader be to recommend the script to a peer or superior in the industry? It's not an average or an aggregate uh, figure of all of the elements. Good to know. Now, uh, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that eights and higher tend to be those that attract the most attention in the industry. Um, Can you say sort of what percentage of scripts submitted get eight or higher? Yeah. um, So eights or higher get the most uh, interest. And and I would encourage everyone to go to our website and look at our 2013 annual report, which sort of covers the numbers through our first 12 months. Mm -hmm. But even if you, if your highest score is a seven, for example, I think scripts who had the highest, whose, whose highest score was seven averaged about four and a half downloads. 
your highest score was six, it was like 2.2. Um, so you can gain traction for the slide even if you don't have an eight, but obviously there's a big jump from seven to eight. I think it goes up to like 10 or, or 15 scripts uh, on average for download for a script that has a highest score of eight and even higher if it's nine. Um, you know, I think, um, I'm sorry, what was the question? I just I, I wanted to clarify the thing about the eights, but uh, you asked something. Sort of, sort of what percentage? Of uh, what percentage? So it's about 5%, I'd say, of the scripts that are on the site have received an eight. Um, it might be a little bit lower than that, but, you know, it's about one in 20 uh, receive a score where we, where we say, hey, this is something that, you know, so you should probably pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And has anyone gotten a 10? Uh, I believe there have been ten, two 10s awarded by our readers through about 18,000 uh, evaluations. Nice. Now, uh, I was reading on Dundeal Pro, which I know you're very active on. Um, yeah, which I try, to be, I try to be active anywhere people are spreading misinformation about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Well, for me, though, it's the greatest thing about seeing you pop up everywhere is not only the fact that you're obviously uh, explaining the blackness and correcting people and, and whatever, but the fact that you're very upfront about it and you're very, uh, if, if somebody has a problem, you try to fix it, which I think is, yeah. is fantastic. You know, because you don't have to. You're obviously, you're a busy man. You've got stuff going on. You don't have to go to all these different forums and stuff and say, you have a problem, shoot me an email. I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll make it right, which I think is great. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I think that there, there are a few elements of that. The first is that I think there's a long history of people operating in this space with less than ideal amounts of integrity and transparency. Sure, sure. Um, and I think that, you know, as someone who admires writers, uh, as someone who has a lot of close friends who are writers, I, I try to be, I think I'm naturally sympathetic to the reality that, you know, at some point in your life, you spent hundreds of hours by yourself writing this thing that you care deeply about. And the least someone that can, the least someone can do that you're paying money to is try to be available and accessible if you have questions or concerns especially if they're dealing with your script and trying to be a bridge between your being an aspiring working uh, screenwriter and being a working screenwriter. I think we owe that to our customers, and I just think that's good business practice. The second is, is that you know, one of my biggest pet peeves in life is bad customer service, so I'd be a bit of a hypocrite if now that I have a company that can provide good customer service, we didn't try to. Um, and then the last is sort of the thing that I mentioned about trying to correct a lot of misassessments that people have about what we do, how we do it, and why. You know, I think because of that long history of, uh, of less than ideal integrity in this space, um, there are a lot of assumptions about how we function, what drives us to function that way, that are just flat wrong. Um, and when people are sort of spreading misinformation, I like to be there to say, okay, you're making this claim. Here's the counter evidence of it. Ask me anything. Um, and I, again, I think it's, it's a great way to explain what we're doing, but I think it's an also a great way to establish that, like, we care about what we're doing. We, we really want to make the best uh, experience possible for everyone involved. We want to be a tide that raises all boats. Tell us how we can, you know, how, tell us how we can improve. Right. Now, speaking about uh, Dundeal Pro and, and sort of that uh, transparency, I guess, yeah. um, there was a, an issue brought up. And, you know, you see it from both sides um, in terms of the scoring and people campaigning for scores. Is this an issue... And if so, what is being done about it? Or is it not really a problem in sort of a, a grand sense? And what I mean by that is some people say that people will go on, post links all over, or ask friends, and can you score my script highly? Can you rate my script high? Give me a good score. 
thereby artificially inflating their score, pushing them higher up on the list, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it requires a few assumptions that I think are sort of fatally incorrect Mm -hmm. to maintain the perspective that the system is just rife with having been gamed. Right. Uh, right. It assumes that if you ask someone to rate your script, um, that they will rate it and rate it well, Mm -hmm. Um, which I don't believe to be true. Lord knows people have asked me to do a number of things since I've been in the business and I've just flat refused or I've said that I was going to do them and not done them. Um, And you see this a lot with the annual blacklist. A lot of people campaign and try to get people to vote for their scripts. And every year at the end of the year, I get phone calls from agents and managers saying, I'm pretty sure this script got eight eight votes. And it's like, sorry, someone lied to you about the fact that they were going to vote for it. Right. Um, And the second is is that the system is designed to minimize the impact of that sort of attempt at gaming. For one, um, let's say hypothetically that a script gets a number of very high scores and ends up at the top of one of the top lists. You know, it may attract attention for a brief moment, and people may download the script, but when they read it and discover it that it's not good, the script will then receive a number of low ratings and it will regress to a more appropriate mean, which means that it won't be on the top list anymore. Right. Um, it's also possible, and I think the way that most people have functioned is to say, let me find the people who have liked my script and remind them to vote for it or to remind them to rate it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's entirely reasonable. Sure. Um, and, and I don't understand why people... Um, would begrudge anyone encouraging people who liked their script to rate it on the site. Um, you know, there's also this sort of additional concern that I know was raised on Dundeal about the fact that, well, these are people who haven't paid for ratings. People should be required to pay for ratings. It's not fair that people who have access to folks in the industry shouldn't be required to pay for ratings when others of us do. You know, and to that, to that I would say two things. The first is, um, if we had required people to pay for ratings or a number of ratings, I'm quite sure there would have been a massive backlash against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we wanted to do was create a platform that would pro- provide the most amount of flexibility for people to figure out how they could get attention for their script. Um, and I think we've done that. So if someone wants to be creative and attract attention to their script without paying us money, they're more than entitled to do that. If they manage to get a little bit of attention that is false, it will quickly regress to a, a mean of what accurately represents the quality of their script. The second is, is that there's real advantages to having paid ratings. You, know, you don't get included on the Monday email that we send out that lists all of the scripts that got eight or better if you're getting ratings from outside of our paid readers. Um, you know, and, and then beyond that, it's just we provide a platform. We're not, you know, we try to provide as meritocratic a platform as possible to the extent that there are uh, influences that uh, that sort of limit the possibility of that meritocracy, that's because those influences exist outside of our, um, our ecosystem, and we do the best we can to minimize their effect within it. Right. Plus, you got to think that if somebody is campaigning within the industry, asking people who have read his or her script and liked it to rate them highly on the Blacklist site, you're getting more industry uh, eyes on the site possibly on other scripts, and that can only be a good thing, I would, I would think. Actually, that's another great point, you know, and, and one that I haven't, haven't raised yet. But if, if there are people who are actively driving people to the site to rate scripts, it is likely that it will drive additional attention in aggregate to other scripts. Sure, um, sure. So I really, I really feel like the concern is overblown. I can understand why there may be questions about it. I've addressed the issue ad nauseum, and yet people still seem to have an issue with it. Um, if they have suggestions for how we can uh, – remove that 
possibility without squandering the entire sort of reason for existence for the site generally um, and sort of the values of the site, not the least of which being that people shouldn't be required to pay us money just because we have the site. Uh, I'm all ears, but no one's made such a proposal yet. And until they do, I'm very confident with, with, with how we've functioned thus far. Right. One of the things that I think the most impressive thing and the best thing that the Blacklist has going for it other than obviously the name recognition within the industry, is all the partnerships that you've managed to form that yeah. really no other uh, script tracking developments site can, can offer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have diversity fellowships with Disney and Warner Brothers and TV development deals with Fox and TNT, TBS. Um, I, I saw that you have a $20,000 grant with the Harvard Hasty Pudding Institute. That's uh, and, and then... Uh, Cassie and Elways, you partnered with Cassie and Elways to take uh, a writer to Sundance. So all these um, partnerships, can you maybe uh, go into a little bit about what these specific partnerships mean for writers' scripts on the blacklist? Yeah, I think it's, um, first of all, thank you for the compliment. And yeah, it's something that we've been really proud of. Um, you know, it really began with a partnership with the Writers Guild of America East, mm -hmm. um, and then subsequently a partnership with the Writers Guild of America West that we're also very uh, proud of. Um, sort of validating what we do and the fact that it's a good thing for writers fundamentally. But no, I mean, I think, look, I, I think the reality is, is that all of the organizations that you talked about, and, and there will be more coming uh, in the very near future, um, you know, I think they, they recognize that we do a very efficient and a very good job of identifying talented writers. And so if they have specific needs uh, or specific desires for the sorts of writers they want to work with, in the case of Warner Brothers and Disney and TNT and TBS, it was they wanted to find writers from communities historically underrepresented in Hollywood. Um, you know, because there's a belief that there are so many different levels of filtering at one of those levels, and no one's quite sure where it is, these folks are being filtered out. Um, and that we do a better job of identifying uh, talent based on the material and not all these other sort of uh, personal characteristics that really don't indicate whether a person's capable of writing a good script or not. Um, so it's very exciting for, for us to be able to, to say, look, not on, by uploading your script to our site, not only are you able to sort of make it available to industry professionals, be they managers, agents, production companies, studios, networks, uh, television studios, uh, even YouTube channels like Wigs, um, not only are you able to sort of make your script available and, and receive interest from these folks just on a day-to-day -day basis, but we're going to, you know, because we're, because we're renowned for doing, for this kind of identification of material and talent, um, we're going to make these deals, we're going to make these partnerships um, with, you know, some of the biggest and most exciting companies in the industry and create opportunities for writers that previously weren't there. Right, right. Now, we talked briefly uh, about the blacklist not really being a coverage service, but it's really more of a development sort of platform with yeah, all these partnerships I mean, and everything. I still, I still struggle with what the appropriate term is for what we do. Right. Um, you know, I think, you know, you could call it an ecosystem. Uh, you could call it a layer over all of Hollywood. Um, you could call it a community. I'm really, I, I don't know that there's an appropriate name for it or I haven't come mm -hmm. to but I see what you're saying. My point is, I think that getting coverage and getting exposure or however you can get it is good. And I think that some writers could, many writers could definitely use professional evaluation, whether they have to pay for it or whether they don't. I always think it's better to get other eyes on your script. 
but assuming most writers are not pros at editing their own material, they may not have the industry contacts, I think services like The Blacklist, paid readers, they can be valuable. And again, the thing that I, I think about The Blacklist is that you have some of these deals and partnerships that other services and sites can't, which I think is, is fantastic. I would actually even go further than that. I think that the, that the, um, I think that the difference between what we do uh, and pretty much what anyone else does is really significant, and it's not simply the, the partnerships that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, the Blacklist really is for everyone. If you're a writer of any sort, there is real value that can be had by being, by, by, by being involved with our site. And let me break down why I think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have partnerships with the Writers Guild East, the Writers Guild West, and the Writers Guild of Great Britain. As part of that partnership, as part of those partnerships, any member of those guilds can list their screenplays, anything they've ever written, uh, in our database totally free of charge. Now, they can't host the script, but they can list it. So title, author, uh, representation information, log line, they can tag their script with any with up to 1,000 different screenplay tags that range from the age, of the, the age and gender of the protagonist to themes to uh, action sequences to whatever it is. So if, you wrote a, if you're a working screenwriter and 10 years ago you wrote a script that was an action movie set in China with a car chase, a love triangle, and the theme of redemption and a female protagonist between the ages of 25 and 34. You can list that information in our database. And if there is ever a producer or a director or a financier who says, you know, the Chinese market is huge right now, I'd really love to find an action movie set in China with a car chase with a female protagonist between the age of 25 and 34. They may go on and do that search discover that you wrote that script 10 years ago and call your agent with an incoming call and say, hey, I'd love to see a copy of that script. I didn't know it existed. And everyone knows, agents most specifically, and managers know that they don't have the time to make 100 phone calls every day for every client that they have and every script that that client's ever written. So we can do, in an automated way, a lot of that work for them and turn what was maybe dead business, what was maybe quiet business into new business on behalf of those writers. Furthermore, and that's if you're well represented. Mm-hmm. You know, we can sort of leverage your back catalog into something that can be front catalog again. Let's say you're a writer who feels, you know, maybe you've just broken through or you broke through years ago and you feel like your agent isn't doing maybe as, as, as good of a job or they just don't have the time to represent you as actively as they could. You can upload your script to our site. You can still pay. the. In the case of if you're a guild member, it's 20% off of all of our paid services. You can upload your script. You can pay to have it evaluated. And we can create, if it's good, we can immediately create buzz around that script and create incoming calls to your reps about the possibility of acquiring it or create incoming calls to you personally about the possibility of acquiring it. And then lastly, if you are a writer who is totally outside the system, you don't have a relationship with anyone in the industry, not only can we provide you feedback about your script that might allow you to do a rewrite and improve it, we can put your script on the desk or in the inbox of people who may want to sign you, who may want to buy your script. Now, admittedly, that is a very small percentage of the people who upload scripts to our site. That is not because we're not effective. It's because that people are looking for good scripts and writing a good script is a hard thing to do. But that's why we also provide all of that feedback. So, you know, not only do you get the feedback on your script, but 
You also get real-time monitoring of how many downloads and, and script view pages you've had. So if you're not getting any traction for your script on our site, you can know I should stop giving the blacklist my money. Right. Um, and I think that's very, very important. You know, we, we don't want to... <coughs> I think that's very, very important. You know, we don't want to take people's money who we can't help. Um, and so if, if you're not getting traction via the blacklist and you've you know, had your script evaluated twice by our readers and both of the readers say that it needs a lot of work, you should probably stop giving us your money and focus on rewriting the script. And we have a lot of additional things that are valuable for folks who are at that stage of their careers. Scott Myers' blog, Go Into the Story, is for my money the best screenwriting blog online. Um, I, I really don't understand how he generates that much content and that much high quality content about screenwriting and the movie uh, community generally. Uh, we have the Blackboard, which is moderated by Shala Evans, who's also singularly tireless. Um, and that's an online community where writers can, you know, can meet other writers and get feedback from them and, and discuss any manner of topics. So I think we're very, very different from, you know, stories from other companies that, that claim to be doing what we're doing. Not only uh, do we have greater access to the industry, not only do we have these partnerships, um, not only do we have greater transparency, but we also provide, you know, myriad resources that cost no money at all. And then if you do reach a point where you feel like your work is strong enough but don't have an outlet for it, we can, you know, do what we can to, to bridge the gap between your being an aspiring writer and being a working professional writer as long as you're a good writer. Right. And actually, you beat me to it. I was going to mention the Scott Myers' blog, Going to the Story, because I do think that's a tremendous resource. And yes. obviously the Blackboard forums. They're free resources. They're tremendous. And I do think that... Uh, you know, screenwriters can get a lot from that. Um, we actually have a couple, a few reader questions that I wanted to throw your way. Excellent. Uh, the first one goes, it's always said that everyone is looking for, quote, original or familiar stories with unique twists or points of view. Can you explain what that means? That's, that's, a, that's a difficult question. I would just, I, I would ignore all of that, frankly. Um, <laughs> What people are looking for is the experience of reading a script and being emotionally moved. And ideally, uh, in addition to being emotionally moved, there is a path from that screenplay uh, to getting it produced and having it be made and be profitable. Um, and I think if you think of a, of a screenplay in those terms... Um, you're able to sort of get away from a sort of lot of hackneyed and sort of cliched advice about like you need a twist on an old idea and you need all those things. It's like if you can if you can write a script that moves people um, that can be made for a budget that uh, will yield a profit if the movie is made well, um, you're much more likely to attract attention for your work uh, than if you don't. Mm -hmm. Right. Here's another one, and uh, I think as a former development production exec, I think it falls into your wheelhouse. What goes on in a pitch meeting? How much should I prepare? How long should it last? Can I bring pictures, artwork, and a soundtrack with me? That's actually four questions. But... Yeah, um, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think, again, there may be a little bit of overthinking happening here. I think that a pitch meeting, uh, the dynamic typically goes like this. Uh, the writers walk in, they're greeted by the producers or the executive or whoever they're pitching to. There'll be some brief small talk about the weather or what movies you saw recently. Uh, and then the executive will say, okay, let's, let's, let's hear your pitch. And then whoever's doing the pitching uh, basically just needs to tell a story. 
and, and tell the story from beginning to end. Um, you know, so there's this woman or there's this guy and then this happens and then this happens and there's a moment where you feel like all is lost and then they do this and this and this and they succeed and there's your, there's your story. So, you know, whatever tools you need to tell the story that actually improve your telling of the story, um, I say use them. But make sure that they're actually adding significant value to your telling the story and don't just feel like props. So if you have photos that give a better understanding of the world that you're talking about or the person that you're talking about, feel free to use them. I think a soundtrack might be a little much um, unless there are specific reasons why it's necessary for you to tell the story with the soundtrack. Um, you know, I, I think it's, again, it, 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 this is will feel like vague advice, but I promise there's truth in it. Uh, tell as much as you need to tell to tell the story and no more. Perfect. How important is networking for screenwriters versus talent? I guess it depends on the stage of the career. I actually tend to think that for the most part, if you're a writer uh, at the early stages of your career, um, networking is not that valuable. Um, and I know a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I think that the real focus for any writer uh, should be working on their craft and writing well. Because um, there's no amount of networking that will have the, po the same positive effect on your career that having written a great script will. So if you take the, you know, hundreds of hours that a person may spend, quote, networking at parties or at coffee or at dinner or drinks, uh, and you translate that into one great script, I can pretty much guarantee you that that one great script will have a greater, more positive impact on that writer's career than all of those hundreds of hours of networking they may do in a given year combined. I actually had a side question, just um, since you played Josh Lyman in real life, uh, communications director on uh, John Cranley's congressional Great. campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's the, he's the Cincinnati mayor, correct? He's now the mayor of Cincinnati. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, just out of curiosity, what was that experience like? Um, and is it true that Hollywood is just like politics, but with better looking people? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I, were, I, I was communications director on this campaign in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, and John Cranley is now the uh, mayor of Cincinnati, and I'm really sort of proud and excited for him. Um, so I wasn't really in Washington, D.C., um, so I can't speak to the Hollywood is, uh, is D.C. With, with, with more attractive people. Um, but look, the experience of working on a campaign was amazing. I think that it, it's very, it is very similar to working on a film or in the film industry in the sense that you have people who get involved because they are true believers in the work that they are doing. Um, oftentimes they have to make compromises uh, of that true belief in order to accomplish their goal. Um, those compromises feel uncomfortable, um, but you have to make them. Some people make more compromises and some people make less and people who make more compromises may have more success and those who don't may or may not. Um, but I loved it. It was uh, it was one of those things that you know you can kind of only you can't only do it when you're 21. But it's certainly a lot easier when you're 21 to move to a, a new city that you've never lived in and sleep in a sleeping bag in an empty room because um, you don't really have the money to do to afford much else and eat at Subway every day. But, um, but yeah, no, it was it was it was an experience that I will treasure for the rest of my life. But I, it's hard to imagine myself going back into politics full time anytime soon. <laughs> um, we're running short on time. We got a rapid fire section. All right, let's do it. Um, here we go. The Franklin or Leonard you'd most like to have over for dinner. Founding father Benjamin Franklin, Queen of Soul Aretha Franklin, or Mr. Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy. 
Wow, that's a great question. Uh, I gotta go with Aretha, I think. How can you go wrong with the Queen of Soul? Can, can, I, can I just like have dinner with all three? <laughs> that would be an amazing dinner party, actually. I have a feeling that that dinner party would be entirely epic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, here's the next one. What is the best black show on TV? Stars Black Sales, BBC's Orphan Black, or NBC's The Blacklist? I gotta go with Orphan Black. No disrespect to Blacklist, which obviously we share a name with, although they don't have a space in between Black and List. Right. But I gotta go with, I gotta go with Orphan Black. That show is amazing. <laughs> and having worked with them both at Overbrook and Appian Way, respectively, who would win in a game of beer pong? Will Smith, Leonardo DiCaprio, or yourself, and why? Uh, I'm going to go with me only because it's the easiest out to that question. <laughs> and do you have any last thoughts or advice for aspiring screenwriters? Um, yeah, last thoughts or uh, uh, inspiring advice. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, which is, um, you know, movies are a very special thing. Um, in, in, in contemporary life, there are very few times where we as a community or as a world or as people in any of those things sort of gather together and have a shared experience. Um, you know, you, you see it in, in sporting events, you see it in live music, you see it in religion, you know, whatever, depending on what faith you are, one day a week you go into a room and you have a shared human experience with a bunch of people that you may or may not know. Um, and I think film is similar. You know, every Friday night there's a new movie and you go to a theater and with people that you don't know and you have an experience, an emotional experience if the movie's good, uh, and you leave the theater seeing the world maybe a little bit differently than you came in. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a sacred responsibility. Um, the, the the stories that you tell, the stories that you attempt to tell, the stories that you make into film that are shared with the rest of the world do have an effect. Um, it may not be an effect that's knowable, um, but it all but it is an effect that in aggregate is undeniable. And so I think it's really important that as writers write. You know, think about what you're putting into the world and, and aspire for greatness because there's really no point in doing it other, uh, otherwise. Um, and also, thank you for easily the, the three best questions I've had in any interview ever with the entire <laughs> round. That, that was great. Awesome. Uh, see, that's why you got to stick around and listen to the end of the show. Yeah, no, I, uh, that was definitely <laughs> easily the three best questions I've had in an interview to date. Thank oh, you. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Uh, you can follow Franklin on Twitter at Franklin Leonard uh, and check out the blacklist at blacklist.com. It's B-L-C-K-L-S-T. There's no vowels in there. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Scribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at Scribes, And on Facebook, backslash Scribes. Thanks for listening.